Join us on Archetypes, a dynamic podcast hosted by Megan, the Duchess of Sussex, as she digs into the labels that try to hold women back. In each intimate and candid conversation, Megan is joined by guests like Serena Williams, Mariah Carey, Paris Hilton, Issa Rae, and Trevor Noah as they delve into the roots of countless common descriptors of women, like diva, crazy, dumb blonde, and the B word, and redefine and reclaim each identity along the way. The complete season of Archetypes is out now wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to the dough, where cash is queen and we hardly know her, but we're still here figuring her out together. Because y'all, season two is here, okay? Hosted every week by me, X Maya. Remember, I'm going to be talking to all types of people about their relationship to money. Reality stars, entrepreneurs, financial experts, and even some of my own friends. Basically, anyone who will get real with me about their dollars. How they make money, how they spend it, and how they save it. Because I'm trying to retire early, people. Season 2 of The Dough is out on March 21st, wherever you get your podcasts. Lemonada. Welcome to the bubble. This is your host, Andy Slavitt. It's Wednesday, August the 17th. So I got a text the other day from a friend who said, hey, I've never seen anybody mentioned in a Wall Street Journal editorial before. Now I know someone. I uh, I was just out and about walking around and I never did actually end up getting to look at that Wall Street Journal editorial. But I do know what it's about. Or I can imagine what it's about. Uh, I want to speak to it here a little bit before we get into the show today, which is a great show. We've got the White House monkeypox czars out in public speaking, I think for the first time as a group on kind of what their strategy is. And I think we're going to hear that. And if you're thinking, hey, Slavit, if you're, it's probably not a bad sign to get criticized by the uh, Wall Street Journal editorial page. In this case, you'd be right. Probably wouldn't always be right. But in this case, you'd be right. It's the same feeling I had when someone sent me a note and said, hey, Tucker Carlson just spent three minutes talking about you at the beginning of one of his shows. You know, it's in life, it's, you can kind of define yourself by your friends. Sometimes you can also define yourself by your critics, uh, be that as it may. So let me just speak to uh, what I think is the issue at hand. Uh, when I was in the White House, one of my responsibilities was talking to all the social media platforms about their misinformation and disinformation policies. And this has been pretty well documented. There's a, there's a long New York Times story about kind of an ongoing conversation that I had with Facebook. And in fact, I invited Facebook on this podcast. And if you go back a few months and scroll back, you can find my conversation with Nick Clegg, which gets testy, but it's pretty, pretty professional, pretty clear. But uh, we called up many of the social media platforms, Facebook, YouTube, Amazon, Twitter, and Asked them essentially, what is your policy for dealing with misinformation and disinformation? And most of those calls, I think, um, you know, what I was listening for is, are they taking it seriously? Do they have a real policy if they see false information? What are their standards, et cetera, et cetera? And I'd say, by and large, most of those calls were productive. The most challenging one was actually Facebook, 
which has been pretty well documented. So what's an issue here is a gentleman named Alex Berenson, um, who was kicked off Twitter and has since gotten back on, is essentially saying that the, we at the White House insisted that he be kicked off the platform. And so I'm sure what this is referring to is the one conversation we had with Twitter. And I don't remember bringing this gentleman's name up, but I do remember that for each of these platforms, we tried to come up with examples so that we couldn't, we didn't have, you know, Twitter or Facebook or YouTube just give us happy talk about, oh, we've got these great policies, but said, how do you deal with this situation? How do you deal with that situation? Anyway, that's, I'm sure what happened. I'm sure that his name was brought up as one of the examples. I think the way it's being written about or the way he's talking about it is that the White House insisted or demanded, I think is the word he's using, that he be kicked off the platform. Uh, There's a far cry from asking about how their policies work to demanding that someone be kicked off a platform. I don't think the White House or anybody's in a position to command that, nor would it be appropriate, nor would it be the way we handle these situations. I mean, there are, are, well, I don't know him personally, there are far bigger names that I am familiar with that are more problematic on Facebook. Tucker Carlson himself, Robert F. Kennedy Jr., a lot of misinformation coming from those folks. And, you know, we never insisted by any means that Facebook uh, would want to kick people off the platform. But we did ask them, how do you deal with content that comes out that's suspicious or misleading, particularly as it related to vaccinations, because we wanted to make sure that people had a chance to choose for themselves whether to get vaccinated based on the right information. So that was part of our job. That was what happened. So anyway, that speaks to that. And uh, let me then talk about monkeypox and what's on the show today. I'm really proud that uh, we have the two people that have been named to lead the monkeypox response efforts, Bob Fenton, who is the coordinator, and Dimitri Deskalakis, who is the deputy coordinator uh, on the show today, really going to speak to, I think, at first, really the questions that everybody has they want to know, which is, how did we get here? Are we behind? When are we going to get everybody vaccinated, most importantly, in, in the high-risk groups? If I'm sending my kids to college, should I be concerned about monkeypox spreading there? When are we going to get our hands around this? And we're going to take all those questions to Bob and Dimitri. I appreciate them coming on. You know, we've had three or four episodes on monkeypox, uh, really talking about it on the ground from the perspective of clinicians, from the perspective of people who are getting infected with monkeypox. And over the course of that time, we came up with a lot of questions uh, and concerns about how things are being handled. And so we decided to invite Bob and Dimitri on, and they're on to answer your questions. So we'll learn a lot from this process, including the answer to three specific questions that I wanted to ask them here that you're going to hear in the course of this interview. Number one, when will the high-risk groups be able to get vaccinated? Let's pin it down to a date. Number two, should we be vaccinating kids? Should kids and parents be concerned? Number three, what about colleges as, as they come back? Cover a lot of other things, but those are three things that you will hear over the course of this interview. Here goes. Bob, Dimitri, welcome to the bubble. So pleased you could be here and welcome to your new roles. Bob, I want to start with you. Why do you think you were brought into the White House for this response? Is it because things were going too slowly? Well, I think I have 26 years' experience in running large incidents uh, across our country. 
And any time that you have an event uh, where the scale and scope uh, continues to increase, it's important to bring someone in, I think, that focuses on managing those types of incidents and understands how to work uh, within our system of government across agencies and departments and uh, understands how to get through bureaucracy and accelerate a response like this. And so that's why I was brought in. Let me turn it over to Dr. Dimitri Daskalakis to talk about his side. Yeah, and I think we're a great team from the perspective of, of sort of different skill sets that we bring. So my experience in doing HIV prevention for decades, along with my work in, in sort of public health response and specifically the work focusing on um, on gay, bisexual, and other men who have sex with men and that community, both advocates as well as people on the ground, I think sort of rounds us out in a way that sort of looks at uh, how we can be really strategic, operational, and efficient to make sure that we accelerate this response. And maybe, Demetria, this will go to you. As you go in, I mean, help us understand the picture you think uh, and the attitude, particularly the high-risk communities right now. It's no secret that there's a sense of frustration that people want to see things moving more quickly. What do you say to the community that is frustrated right now? Yeah, I think that the probably most important message is that everything that we're doing is really multi-domain. And so as we sort of unfold better sort of biomedical prevention by increasing access to vaccine through all the different strategies, I think that's important that there's like this new five dose strategy um, that increases like one vial from one dose to five, but also all the work to get more vaccine on the ground in every other way, um, including production and shipping, et cetera, that along with that, we really um, have to give people frank and honest advice um, around what they can do to sort of change their own risk. And I think from the perspective of frustration, I think that the speed is there, the urgency is there. There have been some real challenges. And one of the biggest challenges is that this is an unprecedented outbreak of monkeypox. This is not how monkeypox acts. And so I think that if there's a way for us to sort of impress upon folks that that this has been a response full of pivots, like, you know, there was one strategy that should be the strategy for monkeypox and vaccines. And that's not what happened here because this outbreak is moving in a different way. The pivot's been made. There were some um, sort of real barriers that made it hard to get more vaccine and then and testing and all of that. And, and a lot of those barriers have been overcome, like getting testing to commercial labs is making it a lot easier for people to get tests. The five-dose vaccine strategy, increasing the amount of vaccine that we have. So I think it's like really uh, like the, there's an all of government and actually all of society sort of strategy here now that really needs to weave together both good advice and good biomedical interventions so we can get control of this. Yeah, and I'll give you I'll give you guys a chance to talk about some of that progress because some of it I think is recent and I think will be good news to people uh, as it heads along the vaccine front, along the testing front. But I, I want to give you a chance to respond to some of the specific criticism that's out there, a couple of things in specific. One is there's this narrative that the U.S. became the leader in cases and that didn't have to happen and that particularly with Pride in June, we could have acted sooner. And then I think there's recently there's been reports around what is the distribution system we're using to get the vaccines out? We have a vaccine system that's been tried and true that we used during COVID and that we're using a different one now. So I think, you know, this is the kind of scrutiny that you guys are used to in these kinds of programs. But I think for people to see where you're going next, you're having a sense of how you see where we've been may be something they're going to listen for. You know, I think our focus right now is uh, really on four key areas uh, in responding to uh, monkeypox. 
one vaccine supply, uh, and that's increasing the vaccine supply, which we've been able to do uh, by the recent EUA granted by FDA by increasing it fivefold. Uh, so that's the first thing, plus uh, additional ordering, working with Bavaria Nordic, uh, and working to leverage capability here in the United States to uh, fill and finish and make more available. So we're doing that to get it out to the most at-risk population. Two is testing, increasing the testing that's available. Done that from uh, 6,000 tests a week up to making available 80,000 tests per week and continue to focus on that. Uh, three is uh, the medication and the prophylaxis and going ahead and moving more of that forward uh, so that it could be used immediately as people are tested positive. And then the last part is public outreach and education and communicating to the public, to at-risk groups, making people aware of the effects of monkeypox so that people get tested, uh, so that at-risk groups get vaccinated to uh, better enable us to contain and control this virus. Uh, so uh, we're doing a lot of things collectively together, but doing that in a unified way across government, state, and local government. As far as uh, issues, there are always going to be uh, issues and events like this, as dynamic as they are, as complex as they are. But I think we've made a lot of progress and the way forward just in the last couple of weeks to help accelerate this uh, response. And I think it starts with vaccinating everyone. Uh, we now have the ability to do that where we didn't have that a couple of weeks ago. Let's get into the to the four parts of the plan you laid out, Robert, because um, I think those are the four areas that I think people care the most about. Um, and you started with vaccination. And I think there's a lot of people anxious to get vaccinated. You know, as we go on the ground in places like San Francisco and New York, we have now vaccines getting to the ground. That's good. Uh, but shortages. Um, you also mentioned that the FDA recently has found a way through an emergency use authorization, which is, I think, well done and commonly done in the times like these to uh, expand the capability of the vaccines. So what would you say to folks around when we'll have enough vaccines so that everybody in, in the high-risk group, defined as the MSM population, the target high-risk population, when do we think we'll have enough vaccines for everybody in that group to be vaccinated? Well, right now uh, we have enough vaccine uh, for them to be vaccinated. So we had 1.6 million people in that group, uh, obviously two doses, 3.2 million people. Um, we've gone ahead and provided out over 600,000 vaccine doses so far, which not all have been utilized. So immediately upon that decision by FDA, uh, one-fifth of each one of those doses can be used by using intradermal dosage. So let me do my fancy math. Six, <laughs> we've sent out 600,000 vials and now we can get five per vial okay hold on let me do carry the one so you got about three million effective doses yeah we're we're, we're pretty close and you had the uh, four hundred and thirty thousand left and times it by five so we're pretty close to the three million plus there's additional vaccine that is coming in that we've ordered uh on top of that so i i feel pretty comfortable that uh, over the, the next month, as we start to vaccinate uh, and continue the vaccinating, we'll have uh, enough to reach the 1.6 million people in the second dose, which is 28 days out. So mid-September, maybe th a month from today, would you say, or over the course of September, there's obviously the question of getting all the doses to the right places. But would you say that 
you believe it's safe to say to the MSM population that over the course of the month of September, that uh, everybody who wants to get vaccinated in that group should have a chance to get vaccinated? Yeah, I think everyone that wants to get vaccinated within that group is going to have an opportunity to get vaccinated. Uh, we're doing uh, additional things like focusing on uh, specific areas to uh, ensure that, especially those that may be either because of uh, availability in their area or maybe stigma reasons, uh, have opportunity to do that. So we're looking at uh, specific events and how to outreach to those groups. But our goal is to make sure a vaccine is available to all those in that high-risk group that we've talked about. And uh, Dimitri, is it? I know you spend time talking to folks in the community, advocates, scientists, uh, frontline physicians. Is that safe to say that that's a commitment that y'all feel comfortable being able to say to folks that over the course of the rest of August and September, you should have enough doses for everybody in the community who wants to get vaccinated? Yeah, I think numerically we're going to be there. And I think really the other part of this is sort of ongoing work with the community as well as the community of medical providers and public health practitioners to make sure that we sort of keep keep the demand going. Sure. So that's going to be another part. So as we do this, like really making sure that we we're like reaching the populations we need to reach. And I think Bob made a really important point, which is that that sometimes they don't come to the places that we normally put vaccines. So being innovative now that there's access to supply uh, of where vaccine can go so that we can get more shots and arms sort of more in the sort of, uh, you know, on the terms of the people who need it and want it, um, as opposed to sort of what, what you know, the like sort of the public health system, how it decides to deliver. It. So I think I think that that's really important. And the exciting step is we're hearing on the ground about places that have already moved or are moving to the intradermal vaccination, and it's it's exciting. Like so we've we're, we've communicated with folks in LA, like a, a health center that really they were like such early adopters. So the minute the in effect this came out, they started training providers, they started vaccinating people, and they've been able to go out to parts of LA um, to really. Uh, do some equity interventions and go places where people may not go to regular care or, or the regular sites. And I'm hearing, um, you know, exciting news that Georgia is flipping on to uh, to interdurable today and that they're going to start having like their larger events um, over the week. So it's really exciting to sort of see what happens when the access limit goes away and and vaccine availability is high. And so I think I think sort of looking ahead, it's going to be about sort of keeping the excitement and the interest in the vaccine and making sure folks who may not be at the very surface of the community who could benefit are aware and come to the sort of come to vaccine in a way that makes sense for them. I want to cut to a quick break and we're going to come back and talk about how best to care for and prevent monkeypox within the target population and also talk a little bit about other populations that may end up being at risk. There, it's Julia Louis Dreyfus. You may know me from my podcast called Wiser Than Me, where I talk to older women and get their wisdom from the front lines of life. After season one aired, I was amazed by how many people told me our show made them look forward to getting older, which is why I'm here to talk about season two of the show. Sally Field, Billie Jean King, Beverly Johnson, Ina Garten, Bonnie Ray, just to name a few, and of course, my 90-year-old mom, Judy. All hail old women. Wiser Than Me Season 2 is out March 27th from Lemonada Media. 
Last Day is a show about the moments that change us. I just don't think I will ever get used to this. I'm Stephanie Whittles-Wax, and I have had one of these moments. We all have. So let's unpack the chaos that is our human existence together. I don't believe things happen for a reason. I don't believe the universe has a plan. Each week, I sit down with a new guest to explore happy, sad stories of transformation. It's leaning far, far into the pain. That's what it is. Listen to Last Day wherever you get your podcasts. Okay, so you guys have outlined a really busy next four to six weeks. Step one, having enough vaccines for everybody. Let's talk about one of the next elements of your plan, Bob, and that's the therapeutics. What are the other nice differences between where we sit today and where we sat at the beginning of COVID-19 is there's a very effective therapeutic, uh, and, and I invite you, doctor, to comment on that. The, and, the, and the other good news is we have enough of them. They're sitting in a stockpile. They're good. They're rare, and they're ready to go. The challenge, uh, and by the way, um, reports from the ground, and these are anecdotal, is that despite the fact that this has to be prescribed off-label, we hear from physicians, and we had one on the show, who said it absolutely, within a day or two, took people that were really, really suffering and just dramatically changed the course, cleared things up, um, visibly cleared things up, physically took them out of pain. But of course, prescribing something off-label at scale and during a public health emergency, that's like the triple lux axis you know, that they do in, the, in ice skating. It's a real challenging feat because... Uh, so you have this weird situation where a lot of people say, hey, I need this, and a lot of paperwork needs to get done, a lot of things need to get done. So what's the plan to get more of the therapeutics to people so they can access them more easily? Yeah, so I think it starts out with, uh, as you said, we do have enough therapeutics in the strategic national stockpile. Uh, and so it's continuing to... Uh, move part of that forward so it's closer to individuals who may need it uh, when they need it. And so we are in an effort right now with partnering with providers uh, throughout the country to do exactly that and move a little bit more closer to them so that when they need it, it's there and it's readily accessible. Can, can you describe that a little bit? Because that sounds like new news and good news. Well, we provided, I think, uh, 20,000 doses so far. And what we want to do is uh, move more of it closer to individuals that need it, but we'll also want to make sure that we don't have it sitting somewhere where it's not needed, right? So it's a little bit dynamic uh, in being able to provide it around the country. But what we definitely want to do is move it forward. And we want to move it forward to not only those places that are at risk, but more importantly, the places we see positive uh, cases coming from, So, uh, which is important to have the testing part of this. So uh, we will uh, continue to move more forward than we have in the past so that it's there and could readily be used quickly. How big an allocation do you anticipate? What's the right way to think about it? So far, uh, I think what we're looking at is we've had, I think, 11,000 cases in the United States. And so what we want to do is be able to cover the jurisdictions uh, and provide sufficient amount based on uh, the numbers that we see uh, continuing to be positive. And so we will uh, provide that number out uh, this week. Uh, we're in the discussions with some of the communities on how to do that, but we'll provide uh, and push more out. Well, let me see it this way. There, There's 
based on the number of cases that were currently reported, which is about 10,000, and the, number, the real numbers are, are potentially uh, higher than that, I'm not sure how high, do you feel like you could safely say that as you execute this, anybody who needs a therapy, we'll go a second to the paperwork, um, will have a therapy available to them? Well, that's that's the key, right? We want to make sure that people uh, that need a, a therapy have it available uh, to them, and there's uh, and it's readily available. Uh, so we will go ahead and and work to do that. Got it. So, Dimitri, my understanding, and you may have a more recent understanding, is that if a physician at a clinic is going to prescribe TPOX, it takes about an hour of work on the part of the physician uh, and some interaction with the patient. I'm a doc. Let's just say I'm a doc. I've got someone in my clinic who's really suffering. And based on the work that you know Bob's laid out, I've got access to the drug. And I think for the many who would say, you know, if, if, they, if they didn't have to spend the hour, they'd be able to give it to everybody who needed it, prevent a lot of suffering. What's your advice? Is there guidance that you're, you want to give to physicians um, on how they can do that more quickly? Because some will describe that still as a barrier to getting it to everyone who needs it. Yeah. I mean, I, I think that, that, you know, the reality of sort of clinical care is that sometimes you have to do some really hard things to get what your patients need. And so I think that sort of really working hard to get the paperwork down is really important. But then ultimately, I think from the clinical perspective, you do what you got to do to make sure you get what you need for the patient. And so right now, the answer for that is that, that an IND needs to be done and the document has to be completed. I think most clinicians, um, you know, really have a lot of dedication to their patients and sort of pursue it. The other part to remember, and CDC put out a really important document that I wish folks uh, were more aware of, which is just about the need for just pain control. Yes. So though TPOX is, an, it's really unproven from the perspective of what it does clinically to monkeypox. So we're going to learn as we go, both from the perspective of the NIH studies that are going to happen, as well as as from the real world experience with the uh, with the drug through the IND pathway. But you know, I think we put out really a great dear provider letter that says like, listen, if someone complains about uh, pain with this one, even if the lesions don't look so bad, you really need to take it seriously. So I think it's really like, you know, thinking of all the domains that work, um, understanding that like, you know, that at this point, given the sort of amount of data we have for the drug, the IND stays in place. I think it's it's like, do what you can do with the things that you've got. Mm -hmm. And then also get the TPOX if it's indicated by using the IND with the sort of understanding that we're working really hard um, to, in this coordinating role to make sure that we, we get it to a place that's easier and easier every day. What's the quick summary of what people should do on pain control? We'll provide a link on the site and so people can find the link to the CDC paper, but I'm wondering if you can just give us a quick version. Yeah, no, the most important thing that, that physicians and clinicians can do on this is take the pain seriously. Um, because when people complain of sort of pain because of the oropharyngeal lesions or the lesions that they may have on their anus or rectum, sometimes it doesn't look so bad from the outside, but it actually could not, it could, it's real. And so we give people advice about a broad range of ideas that they can use to treat um, the pain, um, you know, as simple as things like Tylenol or acetaminophen and ibuprofen, all the way to sort of higher level pain control as needed. And so also reminding folks, if you really don't know what to do, like, talk to someone who's a pain specialist because this pain is real and it's something that we hear um, over and over again for people experiencing monkeypox. So so it's 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 just so important to sort of remember that there's TPOX, which potentially could help benefit in this infection, but there's other things we can do along with TPOX to make people more comfortable. Got it. Also topical, like there's also like the idea of like using lidocaine. So uh, again, these aren't perfect. None of them are perfect, but like taking the pain seriously and treating it is is such an important piece of the clinical care of monkeypox. Got it. 
Let's talk about prevention a bit with this population. Uh, and there, there's two elements to this, and Bob, you, you alluded to both of them. One is testing. And I'm wondering if you just help us think about uh, now that we have commercial labs producing tests at scale, which is a better place to be, right, than just the CDC producing them. And we're, you know, so we're, it sounds like you've added a digit, right, to the number of tests that are getting out there. Talk a little bit about how and when people should be testing, how effective the testing is, and maybe a sense for, is there a pipeline of more types of tests, rapid tests, other more accessible tests? Yeah, so I'll start. So really, I think that the most important sort of message from the testing perspective to me is that the tests are available. Um, we've increased the, the capacity and that when you see someone who has uh, a lesion that is concerning for monkeypox or for something that's ambiguous that you don't know, it's really important to test. And there are a lot of reasons to do it. Um, a, because it's good to have a diagnosis and that's a clinical answer. But B, it's also important to remember that um, this is one of the ways that we actually can figure out where the disease is. And so it's there's a really important public health uh, sort of of intervention that happens by testing folks that have potential lesions because, you know, by seeing where the positive tests are, it really helps us position vaccine and treatments better. And is there a third, I'm sorry to cut you off, I apologize. You're fine. Isn't there a third benefit also, which is that if you're going to have a sexual partner, you know, a, a important as a, as a prevention tool to be able to say, hey, I'm negative, I just tested. Like, will we have sufficient tests for people to use them for that purpose? So Andy, definitely, I think if someone has a lesion, the first thing to remember is that you should, until you know otherwise, uh, assume that it's monkeypox. So that from the perspective of action on the ground, um, like before you even go to the clinician's office, like assume that you are are going to try to avoid close skin to skin contact, especially in sexual encounters or environments. But then secondly, yeah, absolutely, like the idea of of sort of you know having testing from the public health perspective is important. So if you have a positive and you have someone who's a close contact, that person you know qualifies for vaccine, um, like, you know, based on a post-exposure prophylaxis model. Um, but then also, if you have a um, someone who, you know, is negative, it also is reassuring sort of in the setting of a rash that, you know, may not, that may a bit be more ambiguous. So maybe it is something else. Maybe it is like shingles or something else. But no matter what, I think the testing is important, both from the public health perspective, as well as from the uh, personal health perspective, as you've noted. Let's go quickly to break. We'll come back and talk about some of the careful public health messaging and then really get into kind of our advice for people who are potentially in other populations uh, that might be wondering if they're at risk or if, if they've got kids at risk. Hey, Lemonada listeners, we want to hear from you. You know we love our sponsors for a ton of reasons, but one of the main ones is that they help us keep the lights on. And there's a really easy way that you can help us draw new advertisers and hear ads for things you're most interested in. Filling out our quick anonymous survey at lemonadamedia.com survey. By just answering a few questions, you can help us find new brands to connect with and also share feedback about show content you'd like to see across the network. And to sweeten the deal, once you've completed the survey, you can enter for a chance to win a $100 Visa gift card. I promise the survey is short and sweet and will help us play ads you don't want to skip and also keep bringing you content you love. Just go to lemonadamedia.com survey. Hi, I'm June Diane Raphael. And I'm Jessica St. Clair. And each week we are sitting down to talk all about life's twists, turns, and absurdities on The Deep Dive. 
From exploring the depths of TikTok, which is our only news source, to navigating the complexities of grief and loss, we are just two best friends behind a mic processing life together. This podcast is all about finding the silver linings in the madness. So get ready for unfiltered conversations about motherhood, careers, pop culture, and everything in between. Here at The Deep Dive, we're all about community. We believe in the power of sharing experiences and the strength that comes from supporting one another. And we would love to have you with us. So be sure to join us every Wednesday on The Deep Dive from Lemonada Media, wherever you get your podcasts. Either of you guys ever been to Minnesota? I have been to Minnesota. You've been to Minnesota? You've been there, Bob? Yes. So in Minnesota, they, they've got this expression they use all the time. It's Wayne Gretzky hockey expression about skating to where, not where the puck is, but where the puck is going. So let's shift the conversation a little bit to where we think this goes next. Because one of the things that, you know, certainly I learned in, in the process when I was in the White House is um, you got to try to anticipate all the things that could happen next. So you're fighting tomorrow's battles, not just today's. And so if indeed we are on our way towards, you know, you know, six weeks or so of getting everybody in the, in the MSM community and high-risk population enough vaccines to get vaccinated, the question goes to, to spillover populations. And I'm wondering if, if you can lay out for people, what are the other groups that should be concerned about monkeypox outbreaks? And I'm thinking specifically of colleges are going back. There's a lot of skin-on-skin contact at colleges. Um, one of the things they're good at, I have a college student, so I think about that. Um, sports teams, wrestling teams, daycare centers where there's diaper changes. H- help us understand what you're most worried about and what guidance can you begin to give universities, parents, et cetera, who are, you know, it's middle of August. People are thinking about that stuff now. Yeah, no, I think being preemptive is what we've done from the perspective of giving the guidance that's like evergreen and for every population. So just having people aware that sex is one way this it's transmitted to skin to skin contact that occurs then. So really getting the sort of information to all populations, but then really making sure that we um, like sort of transmit the guidance that we have around safer sex as an example and, and sort of congregate settings and what to do in congregate settings and making sure that's getting to sort of universities. And so that's a lot of the focus is making sure that that we're, we're getting the information to the right place, similar to what we did with the gay, bisexual, and other MSM community, like really making sure that the guidance that's sort of general um, also gets um, to the right place from the perspectives of colleges and universities. So, I mean, right now, um, our current sort of vaccination effort really focuses on gay, bisexual, other men who have sex with men, because we want to sort of address the health of those, those individuals. But, you know, really the guidance that we have goes beyond that and really focuses on, on sort of general sort of strategies um, to either prevent transmission or um, avert transmission if cases emerge. So it's like it's making sure that colleges know about this and they know what it looks like and know what to do if it comes up. Should parents be vaccinating their college kids when they go back to college? Like with HPV, you know, there there's a big push for vaccination, obviously. Yeah. I mean, so the current guidelines or the current recommendation for vaccine is really focused on in, on the folks who are in the highest risk for getting monkeypox. And is that because of vaccine supply? 
I, I think it's the public health strategy really in general for anything like this is to focus on the population who's experiencing the most disease transmission. Because again, like that's what the epidemiology is saying to us pretty clearly and consistently, not only in the U.S., but internationally. But what about Wayne Gretzky? What about Wayne Gretzky and his puck? Isn't he saying, hey, kids are going back to college. They're going to have a lot of sex. And we got to keep an eye on the puck, but we got to be in the same rank. So like, that's kind of looking at a rink that's outside of where the puck is right now. So I think that that the sort of awareness and that sort of connectivity with those environments is really important. And that's like really what the focus is, is making sure that the word's out and, the, and that we're sort of connecting with them. But I mean, right now, the, the strategy really is focusing on the highest uh, the highest risk uh folks for getting monkeypox to make sure that we protect them. And again, really close surveillance, really like ear to the ground, eyes to the, um, to, the to the sort of surveillance to make sure that if anything changes, we pivot again. Um, but right now, really, the, the focus is to, to sort of vaccinate the community most at risk. And and as I was just going to say, as as we do that, you know, to your point of, you know, where the puck will be, that we're doing things to continue to be ready for if it did continue in that direction, right? We're doing the awareness, making more vaccine, right? So we're not stopping to, if we need to increase and take other steps, we will have that capability. So the FDA caught a lot of parents' attention when they said that the monkeypox vaccine was able to be given to kids. That certainly implied that kids were at risk and the kids should be given the vaccine. There'd been, there'd been some cases with kids. And I think what, what frustrates people to some degree is that we don't all live in an epidemiological world. We live in a world of personal risk. And so parents would be right to say, I understand my, that my kid's risk is lower. I understand that. And I also would understand if you told me, hey, we've got a vaccine supply issue in the near term, so we don't recommend vaccination for a while. But I think there's confusion because of the FDA statement around vaccine availability for kids. And I think you know, th- these cases obviously get blown out of proportion every time there is a case for with a kid or in a school. And and I expect that as college comes back and we hear monkeypox, you know, we'll see headlines, monkeypox outbreak at University of Blank. And then parents are going to say, OK, what do I what do I need to do? Should I be worried? I'll start on that and say so the, the, the FDA um, authorization for children is actually um, preemptive in, in a lot of ways, but not because of sort of the projection of necessarily necessary risk for kids. It's that even for post-exposure prophylaxis, um, so that means after a child is exposed, if they're under 18, um, it required uh, to going through like an IND to be able to get the vaccine. So this really eases access um, since it's a safe vaccine for kids to be able to get this after an exposure. With that said, folks in college, many of them are going to be over 18. And if they have other sort of risk factors that, that qualify them for vaccine, they should absolutely pursue it. Um, so if they are gay, bisexual, they're men who have sex with men who, who meet any of the sort of criteria that, that, that are local, like they, they should absolutely get the vaccine. And now that supplies are available, I think it's going to be easier. So really the FDA EUA is really trying to ease access um, in the scenarios where we have a post-exposure prophylaxis. It's not really to signal that all of a sudden we have um, the potential for, you know, higher risk in kids. In fact, when you look at the risk for kids, um, I think it's fair to say it's extremely low at this time. Good. Well, I I think that um, it's, it's really helpful to clarify, right? Because there's nothing about your sexuality which causes this to spread. It's skin-on-skin contact, and that can happen anywhere with anybody. And there, there are, I'm sure, plenty of women that have sex with bisexual men in colleges and have sex with other men. 
And I think people will benefit from either the CDC or somebody else coming out and clarifying, here's the best way for you to avoid getting monkeypox in these sorts of situations. Great. And again, totally right. There's so many ways to do it. There's lots of domains. And for some people, I'm not in, in the sort of highest risk and sort of the, the imminently harms way. Vaccine makes a lot of sense. But for others, it's awareness and, and behavior. So I think that that's you, you hit the nail on the head from the perspective of, of like the, the sort of range of options to be able to prevent monkeypox. Dimitri, let me ask you this as a final question. The key to trust, or at least one of the keys to trust is is really, you said it very well, it's great, honest, clear communication. And what we often forget in the White House, but then we could soon remember, is communication isn't really begin with us talking. It actually begins with us listening and hearing what's going on and people knowing that they're being heard. I wonder if you can just talk about in closing how frequently you stay in touch with the community, how you keep your ear to the ground, how you... Uh, make sure that, as Bob said, things happen, you know, that, that you, you talk to someone in a clinic in New York, San Francisco, or Miami, or Houston, and, and you all hear what's happening. How frequently do you do that, and how important is that as a part of what you're doing? I mean, coming from the HIV space, which is where I l- usually live, it's the central piece of, of what we do. So I think that really focusing on on ways to connect with the community and sort of all levels of the community. So I'll give you examples, like from the perspective of like working with sort of this organization, Interpride, to make sure that we met, all, we like reached all the Pride organizers before the Pride events, like meeting with like organizations that represent uh, LGBTQ people and making sure that we have on those encounters, actually people from the community community, whether it's organizations that serve the community or people themselves from the community, and then like really keeping in touch with the providers, like whether they're social service providers or medical providers, because they get such rich information to us about what they're seeing on the ground. Um, The other part is, again, keeping in touch with the jurisdictions. And that's something that we do at the White House and also that we do with at, at all of the other agencies, because like we hear so much on the ground about what's good, what could go better. Um, and, and it's all sort of tied in it. And I think also just like really signaling clearly, uh, especially the gay, bisexual and, and other MSM and other LGBTQ community that like we're open to hearing how we can improve what we're doing. And I think that that's a really clear context of a lot of the engagements that we have, whether it's, again, with service providers or their providers. And so you know, I'll tell you the other thing I found great value in is, you know, when I, I, I have given many many vaccines by volunteering um, in Atlanta to sort of put vaccine in people's arms. And that really means that I'm connecting with the folks who are really at the cutting edge or the leading edge of the epidemic. And I'll also say that having 30 of my own friends who've had uh, had monkeypox and sort of the challenges has been really important. So I think that also like one of the amazing things about this, uh, I think the administration and sort of our coordination team is that they're really looking for our lived experience as part of this, like our lived experience in public health and an emergency response, but also our lived experience uh, as we touch the community. So I think that that's that's what it's all about. And sort of also having a lot of humility that sometimes you make mistakes um, and that it's really important that if you need to engage differently, that you engage differently and that one engagement plan doesn't work for the duration of an outbreak. It evolves over time. So I think that, you know, literally, I think we have our ear to the ground. I I feel like they have people have us on speed dial and we have them on speed dial in terms of learning um, how we can do this better and, and stay as engaged as possible. I I think that's so important. I, I, and I agree. Look, I, I'm sorry about to hear about your friends, Dimitri. Um, and yet, because you have friends with monkeypox, I think that's an important thing to convey. It's per- This is personal. <laughs> yeah, and it's important to convey to yeah. people that 
The, the only thing worse than suffering is suffering when you feel like no one's paying attention and nobody cares. And I think for that part of the feeling to go away, and on top of that, for you know, you Bob to come in and say, "Hey, we've got we've got our arms around this. This is what this selling is going to take, and here's the plan." In the meantime, you know that'll prove itself out over the next number of weeks. But that that's what I think people have been waiting for. Thank you both for your service and for being in the bubble. Thank you for having us. Hey, thanks for having us on, Andy. Okay, let me tell you about some exciting shows coming up. Friday, we got a great show. We have a Friday conversation. Jessica Levinson and Ben Wittes from Lawfare Blog. This is going to be a conversation around what's going on with the FBI case with Trump and the search, what's going on with the Georgia case, the New York case, the January 6th case. We're going to try to make some sense out of all of these things coming at us. And then next week... Among others, Tony Fauci will be here for a great show, and we're going to talk about where we're going with the new vaccine boosters, and I'm going to ask him your questions directly, uh, which you'll be able to provide me on Twitter, so that'll be fun. Anyway, thanks all. We'll look forward to Friday's episode. Talking to you then. Thank you for listening to In the Bubble. We're a production of Lemonada Media. Catherine Barnes, Jackie Harris, and Cal Sheely produce our show, and they're great. Our mix is by Noah Smith and James Barber, and they're great, too. Steve Delson is the vice president of weekly content, and he's okay, too. And, of course, the ultimate bosses, Jessica Cordova-Kramer and Stephanie Whittleswax, the executive produced the show, and we love them dearly. Our theme was composed by Dan Millad and Oliver Hill with additional music by Ivan Kuryev. You can find out more about our show on social media at Lemonada Media, where you can also get a transcript of the show, and you can find me at AceLavit on Twitter. If you like what you heard today, why don't you tell your friends to listen as well and get them to write a review. Thanks so much. Talk to you next time. Hey, friends, it's Megan Trainer. And her big bro, Ryan Trainer, And her husband, Daryl Sabara. Each week on our podcast, Working On It, we share behind-the-scenes stories and bring you into our hilarious and heartfelt conversations, and sometimes with amazing guests. We tackle everything from navigating Hollywood to mental health to Megan becoming a mother, Daryl becoming a father, and so much more. We'll get into the nitty-gritty of our lives and leave no detail behind. Prepare to laugh, cry, and hopefully learn something new. Listen to new episodes out every Wednesday, wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, hello, hello. I am Jose Andres. Maybe you know me from my restaurants or maybe from Wall Central Kitchen, the organization I founded to feed people after disasters. Well, it's time for you to know my podcast, Longer Tables. Each episode, I get to know fascinating people in the most intimate way, through food. Stacey Abrams, Jojo Ma, Jane Goodall, Padma Lakshmi. I will answer questions from listeners too. Join me in building longer tables, not higher walls, whatever you get your podcasts.